When I was thinking about talking today, I was getting very happy about giving this talk because this is either the ninth or the tenth time. I think this is the ninth time that we're here on Thanksgiving. Uh, Might be the tenth. Is Adam nine right now? Or okay, so this is this is the ninth time. Okay, <laughs> I reckon these by Adam's birthday. Uh, so this is the ninth time that we're here, and this is the ninth time I've given a talk on Thanksgiving, and I've always loved thinking about the challenge of what would I say new about being thankful. And so I, I, yesterday, at one point, I thought I'd give a talk that would just have three words, happy, thanksgiving. And I would talk about what it means to be happy, which I think... Uh, I could do for a whole hour just by itself in terms of it means wise or truthful or mindful or any of the above or or what it means to say thanks which is again wise and thankful wise and and mindful Uh, last year Jack and I had a wonderful talk right after the talk where I said I think mindfulness is just thank you practice And do you remember that? And you said, but what if something, you know, what about the really bad things in life that happen? And he mentioned some dreadful things. And then I said, no, well, the dreadful things in history, the dreadful things that are happening right now, the dreadful things, the the numbers of people who have been killed in Bosnia, the numbers of terrible things that are, the numbers of terrible things happening to people in, in our very own country at this point. He said, could you say thank you? And I said, well, what we have to say is no thank you. <laughs> but, but I could do... <laughs> so actually, not even what I meant to talk about, but since that's got so much energy, let me tell you about that for a minute. Because one of the things that I have learned in the last month or six weeks, I've been teaching quite a lot in the last month and six weeks, and I've taught myself an incredible amount of Dharma, for which I am very thankful. Uh, And partly it has been to amplify my understanding of mindfulness. I've always been saying that mindfulness is the balanced awareness of every moment of experience, meaning that balanced is without clinging and without aversion and fully awakened to and open to. But I haven't said so much responsive to. And it's a word that I've been adding. Uh, I think it's inherent in that definition that if we are awake and if we are aware and if we are balanced, then we are wise and the appropriate response will spontaneously manifest itself. We won't have to figure it out. It will manifest itself. We will be compassionate. We will be generous. We will be kind and friendly and all loving and all the things that we innately are. But I've been loving to say responsive to because I think it's the sense of possibility of response that really makes me be in touch with the concept of freedom. Also makes me be in in touch with the concept of faith. That I think the faithful moment 
is the one that knows that we are free yet to act, if not on the outside, on the inside. We are free even to make the moment of acceptance if there isn't anything that we can do on the outside to change. But it's absolutely complete freedom to say, I choose the mind state of this moment. I choose a response to it. So I've been thinking about that. I think it's implicit, but I think uh, I've been liking to say that. So then I thought, well, I could talk for a whole hour about thank you. And then I thought I could talk a whole hour about giving. Because when we feel thank you and uh, responsive and aware, uh, then we are naturally our regular, generous selves. Does Colin want to sit up with me? That'd be all right. Colin, you want to sit with me, sweetheart? Okay. There you go. Is that a pillow for him? There you go. My grandson, Colin. So, I thought I could talk for a whole hour on giving. And, and I, ta- I thought I could talk about metta practices giving, and we'll do some metta practice together. And then some things happened between yesterday and today, things, things that I wanted to tell you about. People have been coming to interviews, and they've been saying, I feel happy, what should I do now? <laughs> and I said, don't do anything, just be happy. And you remember that uh, the, the uh, Maya Baba poster that said, remember, be happy, and that they made a song out of it, and everybody thinks it's kind of banal. It's fundamental dharma. It's quintessential truth. Remember, that's the potential of the human heart. We don't have to develop the capacity to rest in wisdom and respond with loving and with generosity and with compassion and with altruistic joy. We just have to remember it. And that all of what we're doing in practice is we are continually removing those obstacles that prevent us from remembering that that's who we truly are. We are remembering ourselves in the most fundamental sense of the word. You know, the other, the, the, the other way that we sometimes use Member is dismember, which means take apart. We are remembering ourselves with all the parts of ourselves. We're remembering our bodies. We're remembering our feelings. We're remembering the contents of our shadow. We're remembering everything that's true about ourselves. And when we remember ourselves, we are most fully alive. And this practice is not a busy practice of becoming somebody other than who we are. It's really the practice of cutting through all the fogs and confusions that prevent us from remembering. And there's actually a recipe. There's lots of ways to tell the recipe. You'll notice that uh, I brought my uh, recipe cards this morning. I decided I'd write my Dharma talk on recipe cards because today's Thanksgiving and everybody is cooking. And so I thought I would bring uh, recipe cards because you are too cooking, and you don't even remember it. That last night when uh, Jack said at the end, we're all bubbling away pots of Buddha soup, I thought I would tell you the recipe for Buddha soup. 
so that you would know that you are, in fact, all cooking away. I sit up here and I watch you all, and I think everybody's bubbling away. And the people who I know from their interviews, I actually know what's bubbling at this point. But everybody is fundamentally bubbling with the same ingredients. Once upon a time, a long time ago, I saw a, uh, a news broadcast on TV. It's actually a true fact. There was a triathlon. Do you know about triathlon? People usually swim and then they bike and then they run. This was uh, swim and bike and cook. Seriously. <laughs> and it was a triathlon run by, organized by a particular cooking school back in New England. And all of the participants were issued a rucksack at the beginning of the triathlon. They had put on this rucksack, backpack, and it had packages of ingredients of food in it. But it was a surprise package. No one knew what was in the package. I saw this on TV. It's true. And with the rucksack, they needed to pedal this long distance. And then when they, they swam, I guess they swam first. And then they put on the rucksack and pedaled. And when they pedaled to their destination, the finish line, there was a kitchen. And they each had a stove. And everyone went in and opened their rucksack and found the contents of the package. And no one knew in advance what it was going to be. And everybody had to, when they saw the contents, cook it up. And whoever cooked it up the best. It was some permutation of not who got there first, but who cooked the best that mattered. (laughs) So everybody here has come to this marathon with a rucksack with identical ingredients. Everyone has, innately, because they were born with it, the capacity for truthfulness and resolve and effort and renunciation and equanimity, and patience, and loving-kindness, and wisdom, and morality, and generosity, because that's the capacities of the human heart, and we were all born with them. And as we sit, and pay attention, and continually remove from the scene all of those bewilderments, those vagaries of mind, that come and trap us into thinking that they're real, as we brush them away, more and more those capacities of the heart are cooking away and turning into Buddha soup. I was thinking about remembering, in terms of remember, be happy, to remember the answer. I was thinking about jeopardy. Um, you know, when, when in jeopardy, people don't have to figure out the answer because if they don't know it, they couldn't figure it out. But they have to remember it. So there's a t- the end of Jeopardy programs where they say, da, 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 da. And the question is, can you remember in time? And I was thinking about that would be a wonderful kind of a notion to think about. That's what we hear in this lifetime to do. We're here to remember in time that the answer is that we never were any place but here and anything but wise and anything really but Buddhas. And we tricked ourselves into forgetting that somehow. So we have to remember in time. So I thought I would tell you a little bit about what all of those ten ingredients look like so that you could recognize them in your soup pot as they're going along. I thought I'd talk a little bit about uh, truthfulness. 
Because truthfulness seems to me the best definition of mindfulness. Mindfulness is just telling yourself the truth in any situation, what's true right now. I I was on this very long teaching trip, and uh, just before I left, I called Jack and I said, I'm going to be teaching all over the place, and I really want to do a great job, and it's such a, a hard schedule. Could you give me, do you have some advice for me if I had to do this really well? Because I want to turn on lots of people to Buddha Dharma. And he thought for the briefest of moments, and he said, have a really good time. <laughs> and so equipped with that magic mantra, I went on this really prodigiously complicated teaching tour. And uh, I'd be in a position where I'd find myself going along teaching fine, and then I'd get demoralized about oh, something that I'd said. I thought, I could have taught that better. I could have said that better. I could have done that different. Hmm. Maybe I can't do this as well as I thought I could do. And begin to see the mind begin to demoralize itself down into a spiral. And, I'd, and all of a sudden, into the demoralizing spiral would arise the voice of Jack saying, have a really good time. And it would be like the wake-up call, the mindfulness bell. And I think to myself, what is the truth of this situation? The truth is, I'm getting a chance to teach people all over the place Buddha Dharma. And I'd love to do that. This is a far-out amazing possibility. And I'd get really happy by telling myself the truth. Truth is what's the truth. What's just happening now? Truth is tremendously liberating. When my father was at the end of his life, uh, this is a story that makes me really happy to remember. When my, my father was at the end of his life and still able to get around, but very much compromised, I spent all my days with him. And he was generally of good cheer, uh, because he certainly knew the truth that his life was coming to an end. We used to talk about which of his grandchildren's households he would like to be reborn into uh, if it got to be true that he got to have that choice. He, um, at that point, uh, Emily was uh, about to get married, and Peter was about to get married. And uh, my father said, well, Peter is more easygoing, but... Uh, Emily's a better housekeeper. (laughs) And my mother was really a good housekeeper, and I really do like a clean house. (laughs) So who knows where he is? But uh, when I I visited him one day, and it it was a long day, and it was a cloudy day, and he was feeling demoralized that morning. And I saw it was going to be a long day ahead of us, and I said, let's go to a movie. And he looked at me with an incredible surprise, and he said, you know, I'm dying. And I said, yes, I know, but not today. Because that was the truth. That was the truth. And he said, that's right. And we went to the movies, and we saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, and we had a great time. And we went out to the Pacific Cafe for dinner, and we went home and had a great day, and the next day he got pneumonia. He went to the hospital, and a few weeks later he died. And I am so happy for the truthfulness of that day. So the other ingredients that are cooking away are effort. 
and resolve. Sometimes people don't know what re- right effort is. Because the, the definition of it is the effort to keep wholesome states alive in, in the mind and to uh, put out from the mind unwholesome states, not to cultivate them. So that sounds sometimes to people like be in denial about unwholesome states. And it doesn't mean be in denial at all. It says be on the lookout for them. So that if you're on the lookout for them, you can see that they are the vagaries of passing mind states and that we don't have to take them to be true. They're just passing mind states. We don't have to get all involved with them and tell them to us and identify with them and say, this is me. What am I going to do about it? It's just a passing, transient, fundamentally empty mind state. It means absolutely the opposite of denial. It means to see it clearly and to see right through it. And it means absolutely to see clearly the wholesome mind states of lovingness and equanimity and compassion, altruistic joy, those very divine abodes that Jack talked about last night. Because they're not transient. They are the home of the heart. That's where we live. They are the fundamental essence of the heart. They don't go away. Those other transient vagaries get in the way of us recognizing that we are at home all the time, even when we think we've wandered off. We think we've wandered off, but where could we wander? This is where we live. We actually have fallen asleep where we live, but if we wake up where we live, then we know I'm home again. Doesn't that happen to you sometimes when you're sitting and the mind, the, the attention is all caught up in some long, long story, and then all of a sudden you realize the attention is all caught up in a long, long story. And in that moment you think, whoa, where was I? And in that moment, uh, what I do in that moment, by the way, is I don't think, where was I? I think, where am I? I think, where was I? Where am I? And I just notice whether I'm breathing in or out. I don't bother to see where I was because where I was was a dream and a bubble and empty anyway. It's not necessary for me to know where I was. It's necessary for me to know where I am. And I do that by whether or not I'm breathing in or out at that moment. And I I feel sometimes when I do that that I fall back into my body. I suddenly feel it. Don't you do that sometimes? It's just like startling. I'm alive. Here I am in my body because I was here all the time. I was just asleep. It's like waking up. I was aware about how much, how much uh, uh, during, the, during this trip, which was really it's sometimes quite demanding in its schedule, I was aware of how much sometimes we trick ourselves by thoughts we tell ourselves. I was going along, I was actually quite high all the time that I was traveling because I love to talk Buddha Dharma to people. I'm getting higher and higher, but the schedule was intense. So I kept finding that I'd have the thought from time to time, any minute, I'm going to be tired and collapse. Then I think to myself, that's just an opinion. That's a thought. You have no clue. I mean, you just made that up. <laughs> you just frighten yourself with a thought. It's just a thought. And it would go away, and it wouldn't happen. I'm talk a minute about resolve. I'm resolve to finish this talk on time for the cooks to serve lunch probably not going to. I was thinking about, I remembered resolve last night. Resolve is determination. I'm going to do this. I am resolved to wake up. 
And when Jack was reading last night about uh, Thich Nhat Hanh telling about the moment of first falling in love with someone and how that uh, really remains fresh in your mind and you can learn a lot of things while you're in love because the mind is awake. And I remembered a boyfriend that I had when I was young, way before I met Colin's granddad, actually. Um, A a boy I met when I was 15 years old, who I met on my trip again, who came to hear me read in Portland. It was a great moment, because I looked 15 to him, and he looked 17 to me. And and he brought his woman with him, and it was terrific. But he was actually responsible for my first hit of resolve for waking up. Because the reason that I liked him when I was 15 is he was a very, he was poetic guy. He wrote poetry and he was somewhat melancholic. Maybe all poets are a little melancholic. And, uh, <laughs> mysterious, because I wasn't mysterious. And I, mostly I didn't know what he was talking about. But, it was, <laughs> but, but I think that that was what was attractive to me. He had, he had existential angst long before I even heard of that as a term. <laughs> And so he would, uh, he would uh, write poetry and read poetry and uh, row me around the uh, Prospect Park Lake writing and reading and reciting poetry. And uh, most of it I, I was thrilled by because I was 15 years old and it seemed very romantic to do that. But uh, he liked Dylan Thomas a lot and I liked the way Dylan Thomas sounded and uh, I liked that... Uh, the, the, the use of the same sound over and over again. But he read the poem of Dylan Thomas to his dying father. And you probably remember a bit about Do Not Go Gently Into That Dark Night. And it ends, each stanza, stanza with the refrain, Do Not Go Gently Into That Dark Night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And in my 15-year-old total lack of clarity, I knew that was wrong. And I thought, I don't want to do it that way. There's got to be another way. And I I look back at it as my moment of beginning resolve. There's another way to do it. And I'm grateful to him for it. I want to tell you about renunciation, because you're all doing renunciate practice here. What we are renouncing, what I renounce most of all when I practice, is I renounce telling myself stories. You think about it, it's, it's, you know, it's a little bit of a renunciation. You're not with your family today, or we get up very early in the morning, or we eat just what's served and we don't choose. But that's not really a big renunciation. There's plenty of food, and it's fine to get up early in the morning. The really renunciation is to renounce telling ourselves all the stories with which we are so captivated. And in fact, telling ourselves, what's the truth of this moment? The stories are just the commentary. Oh, there's that T called constant comment. That, <laughs> I think that maybe we have all drunk too much constant comment tea. They serve it so much, it retreats. Too. <laughs> we, should, we should maybe market a new tea called ceasing comment. <laughs> It's all conjecture anyway, all that commentary. Just what's here. It's all fantasies of the future and review of the past. It's not necessary. 
Oh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about equanimity because I could get to talk about Horton. Remember Horton? Do you know Horton? The elephant? Okay, this is about Horton. Uh, We are all practicing equanimity every day here because every day the vagaries of all the passing mind states are coming and going and elating and annoying and lifting us up and knocking us down and we are still sitting here. I love to look at everybody sitting out here because everybody sits like a rock. And I know that inside of everybody is storms and thunderstorms and lightning and thunder and shooting and carrying on and all kinds of stuff and everybody is just sitting. And it's not non-emotionality equanimity because everybody feels all those storms. It's sitting through the storms and still sitting. Because if you sit through them, it's not to become a Stoic and get a sitting through. Actually, Stoic is a good word. Epictetus was a Stoic. It's not to become um, inured and passionless. It's to become convinced that we can sit through anything. And that when we do, we become wise. Not because we see we are long enduring, but we see that everything passes. That's the big wise. See, everything passes. So nothing needs to be so frightening. So you remember that Horton sat on an egg that a bird, Daisy, left. And uh, she said, I'll be right back. And then she wasn't right back. And he sat there all the time. And she didn't come back. And he had made a promise that he was going to stay. And uh, soon, however, the whole summer passed. And then it was autumn and the leaves blew away. And then it was winter with snow and with sleet and icicles hung from his trunk and his feet. But Horton was faithful. He sat and he sat. He meant what he said what he... mm. He meant what he said and he said what he meant. An elephant's faithful, 100%. So he sat there. And then the book goes on and on and on and he sat through all kinds of storms and sleets and vicissitudes of time and eventually, just when the bird returns, the egg breaks open. And out of the pieces of red and white shell from the egg that he'd sat on so long and so well, Horton the elephant heard something whiz. It had ears and a tail and a trunk, just like his. (laughs) And it should be, it should be, it should be like that because Horton was faithful. He sat and he sat. He meant what he said and he said what he meant And an elephant's faithful, 100%. So it's a karma story, you see, about (laughs) things work out in the end. And somebody told me recently that they were going to write a liberated Horton and that it was good to write a liberated Horton because Horton should have gotten up somewhere along the way and said, listen, I had it. I'm sitting too long on this stupid branch and the bird, it's not my egg after all, it's the bird's egg. So it's not right for me to have to suffer on behalf of that bird, so I'm getting out of this tree. But in fact, you get a job, you do it. And then things work out. It's the truth of karma. Do you think Horton should have gotten out of that tree or he should have stayed? (laughs) So Horton also had patience and maybe wisdom to know that all things happen in their time because that's what wisdom is about. Patience 
sounds like something that happens over time. I think patience is some sort of an ability to wait with contentment right now. James and I talked about this a lot this year. and We had a lot of discussions about whether we could talk about patience as patience that's completely content and, in fact, enjoying the patience. You put a cake in the oven and you know that you can't eat it for 45 minutes. You don't become impatient about eating it now. You're just in the waiting time now. Now is now, and later is later. I was in the Oakland airport recently. I had a great lesson. I was with my friend Gina in the Oakland airport, getting ready to go down to Los Angeles. And uh, we both noticed a couple in the the adjacent uh, boarding area standing and kissing. They're kissing. They're kissing and kissing and... Kissing, kissing. Look at them, they're still kissing. I look at Gina. (laughs) She sees me looking at them kissing. I look at her, we acknowledge. We both see the sweet scene, kissing couple. We look back, couple still kissing. Look at Gina, couple still kissing. And they're kissing in a really sweet way. You know, she's holding his head and stroking his head, the way you do a baby, really. And he's kissing her all over her face and little kisses all over her face, really the way you do a baby. And kissing and kissing and kissing. And I look at Gina and I say, this is really erotic, isn't it? And she said, yeah, it is. I said, why do you suppose it's so erotic? And she said, well, it's because they clearly they love each other a lot. And uh, I said, uh, she must be leaving. And Gina said, no, she's just arrived. <laughs> So I said, no, no, if they arrived, because the boarding lounge was totally empty. I said, if she's just arrived, why are they standing there in a public place in a boarding lounge? Why don't they go somewhere together? I mean, clearly, clearly they're people who loved each other and they're happy to see each other and they're going to go off together eventually. So why are they standing there in the boarding lounge? And they're kissing and kissing and kissing and kissing. And finally, they get up. They, they actually were standing up, but finally they pick up the suitcase and they, in fact, leave. And they go off together. became quite clear that they were going off together. They were not going to be separated. And clearly, my mind had leaped forward into people who are really happy to see each other in an affectionate way might, in fact, rush off to do that in a private place and maybe escalate the level of affectionate uh, demonstration, but and they probably would go off and escalate the level of dramatic input, but there's no hurry to do that. Here they are in the moment of meeting each other in the airport, and they had. They had the moment of meeting each other in the airport, and they just did that whole moment. Maybe it's a patient story. You think that's a patient story? (laughs) It's certainly a mindfulness story. It's what's here now is here now. Let's do now, now. Well, 
Can we do all ten? So the wisdom, really, of knowing that all things happen in their time probably has something to do with patience. I think uh, we're all a little wiser than we think all of the time. And that if we take just a moment to reflect, our wisdom manifests itself. When, uh, um, when I, uh, my children were young, I was a yoga teacher at the College of Marin. And I taught every day from 4 o'clock till 7. And people used to say, isn't it hard to get out of your household at 4 o'clock if you have four young children? And it was hard because I had to get this one to the swim team and that one to the ballet and this one to the dentist and wherever. Everybody had to get relocated from school into some new place. And uh, sometimes they didn't come home on time and I'd be late for school and I'd, be, I'd become irritated inside. I'd be, become annoyed with them. And once again, somebody would forget their homework and I'd uh, be annoyed with them and I'd be thinking to myself, tomorrow I'm really going to let them know about bringing the homework home on time and remembering that we have to go back to school and get the homework and bring it home. And I'd either have words with them or I'd think about having words with them, and then I'd get everybody to be positive wherever they had to be. And I'd rush into the college and we're in, and I'd think to myself, this is not a good place to start to teach a yoga class from, but I can't tell everybody I'm all in a flurry. That's not appropriate to do. So I'll just start to practice. I'll start to practice, and bring your arms out to the front, and bring all your attention into your arms, and feel your arms, and Really let your attention rest in your arms, and tomorrow I'm going to tell him about the homework, and he's going to hear it from me. <laughs> and then bring your arms out to the side and hold them to the side and feel the feelings in your shoulders and all in your arms. And so inconsiderate of him not to remember that I have to go to work every day and that he doesn't realize, and he wouldn't do this for his dad, but for me. But bring it up and bring the arms over your head. And on and on and on, and about 15 minutes into this, I had it down to a science, somewhere between 10 and 15 minutes into doing it, the mind unties its knots, and wisdom reasserts itself. And I think to myself, he's eight years old. He doesn't know about homework and my schedule and the college I'm in, and he could care less about it. And I'm so happy that I didn't have the words with him when I didn't have the words. And I'm so sorry I did have the words when I did have the words. I'll have to go home and fix it up. We're wiser than we think when we take a moment to reflect, to remember. This is remembering practice. We're remembering how wise and how kind and how generous and how loving and how generally wonderful we are when we are clear. We don't have to become that, learn how to be it. We have to remember that we already are. So that there are three more. Morality and generosity and loving kindness. I was trying to remember what Gill's word was the other night that he said was a grandmother word. Do you remember whether it was restraint? Composure, I love that. I was thinking of other grandmother words like restraint and virtue, words that we didn't use in a long time because they were uh, out of favor. But actually, the word that turned me on to this practice the most that I remember from my early teachers was impeccability. I remember one of my teachers using that in the beginning. 
And I love the notion of impeccability. It just seemed to me so wonderful, especially the era that I heard it was an era that was probably much more profligate than most. And the idea of impeccability of living, the idea of feeling fine about everything that you did because it was really motivated by clarity and therefore filled with impeccability. One of the plays that's most difficult, used to be when I was a child, very difficult, even a young person, not just a child, to stay with, but now I really love, was Cyrano de Bergerac. You remember Cyrano de Bergerac? He was impeccable. He wrote love letters for a man who didn't know how to use words. And uh, Roxanne fell in love with the bearer of the love letters because he was very beautiful in his body and in his face. But actually Cyrano wrote the words and it was Cyrano's heart and Cyrano's sentiments. See, when I told it to you, my hair stands on end. Because I always felt terrible for Cyrano, not because he wrote the love letters, because that was the love that was in his heart. But then by and by, Christian dies. And in all despair, Roxanne takes herself to a nunnery, a convent, and lives there the rest of her life. And every week, Cyrano comes to visit her on Saturday in the afternoon. And every week she brings out the love letters that came from Christian and asks him to read it to her. And every time I see that, I think to myself, he should tell her. It was really me who wrote the letters. He died already. It was wonderful that he wrote the letters. It was wonderful that he didn't tell while he was alive. But he's dead. He's dead a long time. Tell her, and now she could love you. And in the end, in the very last scene, he... uh, He's going blind. He's wounded in a duel on the way. And he comes and he reads the letters again. But he keeps on reading the letters when the light has fallen and it's dark. Because he doesn't know it's dark. And then she knows that the letters are his. And he says at one point, in talking about what he has left, he says, you have nothing left. He says, I have one thing left. I have my white plume. I have my integrity. I have my impeccability. I love that, don't you? It'd be wonderful when we get old to be able to say that I have my impeccability. And the two last ingredients are generosity and loving kindness. I think when we are happy and resting in our happiness, we are generous. We're generous out of wisdom because we see that we are each other, really. Remember the time that we were in India and we had that discussion uh, uh, and we were talking, you and I, about the practice of generosity and somebody was saying to us, the real practice is when there's no one to be generous and no one to be generous to and where it's just a natural act. That was a very momentous time for me. I remember that just where we were sitting in the garden when we had that discussion. That generosity is our natural way, that when we see clearly, we share. And one of the things we share with each other is friendliness and good intention and our lovingness and our well wishes for each other. And I think about the fact that when we live here together for these few weeks in silence, 
and we don't even look at each other much in order not to intrude in each other's face. It looks to an outsider like we are not friendly to each other. And yet that I feel this is the ultimate of friendly and supportive communities. That, in fact, we give each other the great gift of space and support and silence. It's extraordinary that we do this. I feel so well-loved and so comfortable when I'm in a place like this. So I know that everyone is taking care of me, people who know me and people who don't know me. So all of those qualities, loving kindness and generosity and morality and loving kindness, wisdom, patience, equanimity, renunciation, effort, resolve, truthfulness, all came in our rucksack. We brought them with us. We developed them as we sit here. We're all cooking away. So I wrote a recipe once. And the recipe was combine the following ingredients. Truthfulness, resolve, effort, renunciation, equanimity, patience, loving kindness, wisdom, morality, and generosity. And the method of preparation is to apply mindfulness, calm, rapture, concentration, investigation, equanimity, and energy, zeal. You may recognize them as the factors of enlightenment that we heard about from Jack last night. When I wrote the recipe, you know, at the end of a recipe it says cook for 10 minutes or stir constantly or it says something at the end for what to do. And I wrote at the end of it, I wrote, wait. (laughs) And James read the recipe and he said, everything about that recipe is wonderful, but I don't agree with wait. So we had a whole long dharma go around about it. And so I changed the last word of the recipe. The last word of the recipe is enjoy. And I'm grateful to James forever (laughs) for correcting my cooking. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on November 23, 1995. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.